Welcome to Mayflower Congregational Church, where we believe that faith is a journey, God is good, Jesus saves, and the Spirit leads us toward faith, hope, and love as we honor the dignity of all God's children. Our faith journey brings us to this first Sunday of February, and we are so happy that you are joining us for this live stream service. I am Rev. Ruth Bell Olson, and along with Rev. Dr. Jonathan White, we are your interim pastoral team here at Mayflower. This morning, Dr. Julia Brown, our director of music, is here, as well as our cantors, Scott Bosher, our chancel choir director, and Ben Clements. As always, we are so grateful for Pat McGuire, who is our live stream engineer extraordinaire. Well, the season of Lent begins on February 17th with Ash Wednesday. Please plan to join us for a brief outdoor Ash Wednesday experience at 5.30. Also on Ash Wednesday, we will launch our church-wide Bible reading program called Immerse. We'll begin our study of the New Testament, so please contact the church office if you would like to order a book, and you can check uh, for details on our website. There is also an Elevate youth group guide and a children, the CE team is CE team has put together a children's guide, so the whole family, all ages, can be involved in the Immerse program. Uh, Beginning on Monday, February 15th, we'll be offering a virtual Lenten music and meditation experience called Art Song in the Atrium. Each week, we will offer beautiful music, art, and devotional materials, so check our website and our YouTube channel. To share more about this and other music notes, please welcome Dr. Julia Brown. Thank you, Ruth. Today you will hear um, one of the art songs that will be uh, posted on our YouTube channel next month. Uh, Ben is here to sing a Schumann art song, and that will give you a flavor of what to expect in our videos. Just a wonderful, wonderful uh, leader. Um, But I'm here today to put out an invitation to all of you. Uh, We have a video project scheduled and planned for our chancel choir and that is to provide anthems and choral music for our Easter service. Uh, We will be pre-recording that Um, and so Scott and I will be sending out materials and we'll be setting up some virtual rehearsals and then bringing in voices two or three at a time into the atrium like we did with them all and record the hallelujah chorus and our traditional opening hymn for easter christ the lord is risen today and i thought this would be a wonderful time to invite anybody who would like to join us to let me know let scott know so we can include you in the uh, information we send out um, so that you can join us for the rehearsals and you can come into the atrium and record with us uh, so we can have a wonderfully joyous easter sunday Thank you, Julia. In these unusual days of pandemic and pastoral search, there's an invitation for Mayflower to continue to trust God and practice our faithfulness. We extend deep gratitude to the Pastoral Search Committee 
and the hours and hours they have dedicated to finding our next senior pastor. They are in the interview process with four potential candidates, so please pray for them and for clarity and for unity on that committee. There have also been many questions about our church reopening plan. Please be assured that there is one. We are tracking the rates of infection in our area, and when the numbers consistently get below 10 infections per 100,000 people, we will begin our reopening process. We continue to seek ways to engage our community safely, and you will find regular updates in our news emails and on our website. Thank you for your prayers for those affected by COVID and your prayers for the health and the future of Mayflower. And now let us prepare our hearts and look forward with expectation to our worship together, for we are in the presence of the Holy. Our call to worship this morning is from Psalm 147. Praise the Lord. How good it is to sing praises to our God. For God is gracious and a song of praise is fitting. God heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. God determines the stars and gives them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. So come let us worship the gracious God of stars and power. Thank you. 
Let us join our hearts together for the opening prayer. Holy Lord, God of power and might, we welcome your healing for our people. We welcome your graciousness in our lives. We know that your delight is not in the strength of a horse or the speed of a runner, but rather you take pleasure in those who fear you and those who hope in your steadfast love. May we find hope and love in you today and always. Amen. Our first scripture reading this morning is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verses 21 through 31. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them like a tent to live in, who brings princes to naught and makes the rulers of the earth as nothing. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows upon them, and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host and numbers them, calling them all by name. Because he is great in strength, mighty in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Even youths will faint and be weary, and the young will fall exhausted. But... Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Our second scripture reading this morning is from the book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 29 through 39. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening, at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door. And he cured many who were sick with various diseases, and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is searching for you. He answered, Let us go on to the neighboring towns, so that I may proclaim the message there also, for that is what I came out to do. And he went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Will you pray with me? Just now, at this time, let our minds think, critically discern, and seek your will. We ask this in the name of and through the power of the risen Christ. Amen. Do you ever think about the wonder of it all? Have you ever had one of those moments where everything just seems to fit together? It's a moment that you wish would last and you can't make it last. But it touches your heart. A starry sky at night, a beautiful sunrise, a sunset over a lake. Those scenes of beauty. Looking into your baby's eyes. Having a baby hold your finger. Those are wonderful moments. And that's the way we experience reality. On the one hand, we can see, feel, taste, and measure. On the other hand, We speculate. That's the nature of humanity. That debate started with the Greeks. When the first pre-Socratic philosopher that we know about, Thales, decided that he wasn't going to simply accept the myths and the legends and all the creation stories, but he was going to observe and report, he started a debate that reigned throughout Greek philosophy. On the one hand, there were the philosophers who speculated. Pythagoras was one of those. In a Greek colony in southern Italy, he led a religious cult. He studied mathematics, but he thought the highest expression of humanity and religion was to contemplate the ratios that kept life in balance. Plato, probably influenced by Pythagoras, followed the same line of logic. He cast knowledge on four different levels. On the lowest level was what we gained through experience. And we worked our way up until the highest level is when we were contemplating perfect things. And the most perfect thing at all, of all, divine unity. Aristotle, on the other hand, represented the other side, the empiricist. If you can't measure it, if you can't describe it, if you can't model it, you can't understand it. And that that debate raged. And it raged throughout the West until a period of time that we call the Enlightenment. Now, I learned a valuable lesson last week with two of my colleagues. In the general staff meeting, where we were all meeting on on Zoom, discussing the way we would handle the issues of the church that week, for some reason I related it to a Prussian army reformer named Eisenhower. And I said to the staff, now you probably haven't heard of Niedhart von Eisenhower, But you have heard, because everybody's heard of him, of his friend and fellow reformer, 
reformer, Karl von Clausewitz, and then I went on to talk about Nisenau. Two of my dear friends the next, or in the next hour were laughing, laughing rather jovially about me going on and on and on about this old Prussian. And my friend Ruth said, nobody knew what you were talking about. And I thought, well, everybody knows Clausewitz. And Julia and Ruth looked at me with blank expressions. Then they started laughing again. <clears throat> I'm going to assume that every historian in this congregation knows what I'm talking about when I say the Enlightenment. And I'm going to assume that many of you have a vague idea of what I'm talking about when I say the Enlightenment. And now I know, for those of you who haven't thought of Clausewitz as a household name, that some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. And I'm going to use a trick that I used in my introduction to honors class at Grand Valley State. I had a group of honors students every fall semester just getting started in the honors college, and they were taking my class, which was a whirlwind uh, uh, survey of philosophy and Western civilization. And when we got to the Renaissance, I would set out this model. Now, I know two of my friends who are historians are going to say, John, that model is too simple. It's ahistorical. It doesn't make sense. And you're just dealing with comic books. You're not dealing with history. You're right. But most of the students in those classes were going into engineering, medicine. Some were going to be federal agents. Many were going to law school, including one of my dear students who is a member of this congregation. A lot of them were going to go into federal law enforcement, some into the intelligence community, and a couple of them to become military officers. They were not historians. So... I laid it out like this every semester. If we think about Western history, we hear this period called the Dark Ages. That's after the fall of the Roman Empire until we get to the Renaissance. They weren't dark. The sun was shining all the time. There was a lot of learning. There was a lot of scholarship. It was dominated by brilliant theology. There was an enlightenment in the 800s in Charlemagne's court with a rebirth of learning. It was brilliant during the Dark Ages. They were misnamed. But when we hit, let's say, 1215, give or take 50 years, we have a rebirth of learning with the discovery of the Greeks and the Romans. It hits art, it hits music, it hits architecture, and it hits thought. There's a rediscovery of old text. There's a flourish of new ideas based on ancient ideas. And there's the rediscovery of text, sacred text, a Greek manuscript or parts of a Greek manuscript that would become something we would call the New Testament in Christianity. 
and the original Hebrew text, the rediscovery of Aristotle. And that led to a questioning of what went on prior to the Renaissance. And one of the things that was questioned was the church, because the church was having political problems. As we revived old text and sought original meanings, a reformation started. We can think of roughly 1215, 1250 to 1500, sorry historians, as that period of Renaissance. And then we think of the 1500s as that period of Reformation. Now, Reformation keeps going on, but just to picture something in Western civilization. Well, if you could question the church, and if you could question religious authority, what about the people who told you this is the way the world is? Well, with this rebirth of learning, there's a rebirth of science. And the 1600s gives rise to a revolution in science. Now, it started in the 1500s, and it continues today. But we can think of the 1600s as the age of science, the scientific revolution. Well, with the Ptolemaic system, that system that has Earth and humanity in the center of everything, and all the planets and heavenly bodies orbiting around the Earth, if the Ptolemaic system could be wrong and Copernicus could be right, then why does the king live in that palace? Why does the queen have all this privilege? Why do our local lords live in manor houses and we live in mud huts? That is the Enlightenment. That is when people in an age of reason, the Germans called it the Aufklärung, the clearing up, that is an age where society was questioned, where Rousseau would write a social con contract, where Jefferson and others would write a declaration of independence and say that governments were created not for the king, but for the people of the state. Actually, they said for men, and they meant white men who own property. We've been expanding that ever since. But it was an age of questioning and reason. That is the enlightenment of the 1700s. Why do I talk about that? Because when we think about the wonder of it all, we think about the enlightenment. Whether you know it or not, you are a product of the enlightenment. And the revolutions that went on because of the enlightenment including this revolution that we live in today with digital information. The Enlightenment forged the modern Western mind. And one philosopher who called this his Copernican revolution, one philosopher took experience and speculation and married them. His name was Immanuel Kant.
And he did so in his metaphysics of morals. Kant was famous for saying, well, he was famous for saying many things, but he was very famous for saying, two things amaze me. The starry sky above me and the moral law that is within me. The starry sky above me is something we can observe. It is something we can measure. It is something we can record. It is Aristotelian to a point. The moral law that is within me is something that is subjective. We cannot approach it with physics. Newton doesn't work. We have to approach it with speculation. That is metaphysics. And Kant said, we all think the same way. The things we can prove and the things we believe. That type of thinking had a tremendous impact on Western religion. That type of thinking would split the Congregational Church between the Unitarians and the Congregationalists. That type of thinking would lead to a new religion called Deism about the great clockmaker who put everything on mo in motion and sat outside the cosmos and watched, but not intervening. It also deeply influenced Protestant thought. Friedrich Schleiermacher was a German theologian writing in the early part of the 1800s. He desperately tried to take the logic, the reason, the searching of the Enlightenment, and put it together into a doctrine of Christianity. Schleiermacher, in 1821, published a, a book, a revolutionary book, called The Christian Faith. The main thesis of the book was that Christianity, and he was a devout Christian, that Christianity is derived from our experience. Today, we would call it phenomenology. Christianity is what we project when we have experiences and attach meanings to those experiences. In other words, most of Christian theology and most of what we know about God is from human projections. Well, that doctrine invaded a lot of Protestant thought. In the 20th century, Swiss theologian Karl Barth thought that Schleiermacher was on to something, but he didn't take it to its logical conclusion. In 1936, Barth's first work of what would become a 31-volume uh, uh, series on Christian dogma, on the dogma of the church, Barth argued 
that what we know about Christianity is what God reveals. It comes to us not through human endeavor, but through the divine revelation of God. And it is experiencing that revelation that leads us to Christianity. Not our projections, but our receptions. As we look at the two passages this morning, we see what at first seemed to be competing ideas. The writer of Isaiah, which most scholars believe is the third writer in Isaiah. Some scholars believe there were two, a minority of people, especially people who believe in the literal nature of Scripture, think there was one Isaiah who wrote over a hundred years. But whatever position is taken, the Scripture from Isaiah today is a revelation from God. It is a wonder. It is nothing that we're doing. We run and we're weary. We fall and we faint. But when we receive from the Lord, we rise up on eagles' wings. We have strength we can't imagine. And we can experience things that we never dreamed. Revelation coming from the outside. Ah, Karl Barth is right. When we get to Mark, we have a different issue in the pericope today. Now, we know Mark moves fast. We haven't got out of, we haven't made it out of the first chapter yet. And Mark has already given us a five-year HBO miniseries. He just does it quickly. Now notice where we start today. Simon, Peter, Simon's mother-in-law is sick. Jesus goes to heal her. And she's touched by Jesus. She can't help but serve. The disciples, apparently inferred by Mark, see this and they gather the people who are sick in the village. What are they sick of? Mark doesn't say. How are they cured? Mark doesn't say. Mark just says, Jesus cures them. And then, in Mark's abbreviated style, Jesus goes off to be alone. We can deduce from the other Gospels Why is Jesus going to be alone? He is going alone to pray. When Jesus goes out to pray, he is not sitting and saying the Lord's Prayer 5,023 times. Jesus is contemplating God. Jesus is contemplating the Christ that was with God from the beginning and the Christ that permeates him 
Jesus is contemplating his mission and Jesus' words, not my will, but your will. Jesus comes back, talks to the disciples, and says, we're going out there. That's why I was called. And they go. The world would never be the same. Ah, that internal journey. Schleiermacher was right. Well, let's go back to Kant. And Ruth and Julia, that's not just because Kant's Prussian. Kant, who said, the starry sky above me and the moral law that is within me, it is not either or. It is both and. Humans conceive of the cosmos. Humans conceive of the meaning of life. Humans conceive of those beautiful moments of the baby holding your finger. Humans conceive of God by making an evaluation of external evidence and speculation of internal evidence. Both and. I'm assuming that most of all, most all of you have heard at one time or another Matthew 11. Some of you just recognized it as soon as I said Matthew 11. Others are thinking, well, yeah, I know the Gospel of Matthew. Do you remember? Think back. Think back to Sunday school. Think back to a sermon you've heard. Think back to one of your Bible studies. Do you remember? John is in jail. And John sends Jesus, or sends to Jesus, his disciples. And they ask, Are you the one, or are we to wait for another? John has gone on an inter interior journey. Jesus and Mark has had that vision. John didn't have it. Jesus did. The, the dove coming down at baptism. John has gone on an interior journey. Are you the one? And can you remember Jesus' response? Go tell John what you've seen and what you've heard. The blind see. The deaf hear. The lame walk. And the poor have heard the good news. Evidence from the outside. 
a yes to creation. So, we practice physics and looking for empirical evidence. And we practice metaphysics by examining. That's the way God made us. That's the way God loves us. In the name of God the Creator, God the Christ, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. One way that we celebrate our trust in God and our love of God is by giving. Thank you for continuing to support the ministry of Mayflower in these uncertain days. We trust that God has a plan for us, and we know that that plan is bathed in love.
In this celebration of Epiphany, we rejoice because the grace of God has come to us all in the birth of Jesus Christ. This morning, as we pray together in thanksgiving for the hope that has come into the world, we will sing together our responses. You'll find these words printed in the e-bulletin. darkness and light, in dreams and visions, in words and stories, ancient and new. You speak to us your promise of a love that knows no bounds. We give thanks to you for your Son, Jesus Christ, your love incarnate in this world. He is the light that shines in our darkness. This child of Mary and Joseph revealed your glory, bringing hope to our despair and joy to our sorrow. Send, we pray, your Holy Spirit on us and on this bread and on this cup. Pour out your Spirit on our community of faith to open our eyes to your presence, to open our hearts to your peace, to open our spirits to your world. As we come together to this table We offer ourselves to you in praise and thanksgiving for your extraordinary presence in all creation. Amen. Using the elements you have chosen at home, together we remember that night so long ago when Jesus took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, 
sharing it with his disciples. We remember his words, This is my body, broken for you. Take, eat, do, in remembrance of me. Using the elements you have chosen at home, we remember as well how he took the cup and blessed it, saying, drink this, all of you. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. been invited to the feast. Let us raise our voices. Giver of life, 
Let your light shine upon us, and may your grace be in our midst. May your wisdom be our guide. Here, may the meeting of Christ with each one of us strengthen our faith, enrich our witness, and bring us closer to the light of Christ now and forevermore. Amen. Before giving the benediction, I would like to speak for the staff. We cannot wait until you're back in this sanctuary again. We miss you and we love you. We want to be safe. I have conducted last conversations with people over the telephone whose only human contact are workers in the hospital, not their families and not their pastors. 
I have conducted outdoor, sometimes in the cold, COVID funerals. As much as we want you here, we want everybody in this congregation safe. But please know that as soon as it is safely possible, we're coming back. And I'll go from worship, knowing that we all have our doubts. We have inquisitive minds. We speculate. We see things that are revealed, and we interpret those things. And that's just how God loves us, because we're God's creatures. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.